the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. are a thousand and one words you could use to describe God, okay? And, you know, most people, I think the first thing they would say is God is love. But near up on the top there, it needs to be God is generous. Because you can't even understand the gospel without understanding the generosity of God. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. So God is a generous God. Guess what? If we want to emulate the character of our father, we should also be in practical ways, generous people as well. God's generosity goes beyond our comprehension. He loves humanity so much that He gave His own Son to save us from eternal separation from Him. I'm sure you've given money to some good cause in the past, or maybe you've given time and resources. But if you were asked to give your child for those causes, it would be a quick and emphatic no. As Pastor Gary will point out in today's message, God doesn't ask us to give up our children, but He does ask us to release them and everything we hold dear to His loving care. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 16 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Luke 16 is where we are uh, in our Bible, so join me there if you would. We uh, come to um, a chapter here that, interestingly, Jesus teaches two particular stories. The first story is probably a parable, as it's subtitled in my Bible. The second story, probably not a parable, though it looks like a parable, probably a real story that Jesus is uh, sharing Verse 1 of chapter 16 says that the audience primarily is his disciples. So this is kind of more of an intimate teaching time with his disciples, not a massive crowd of people. However, further down in verse 14, it says that some Pharisees were listening in. So this is in a public setting, and Pharisees are listening in. How much of this really Jesus intended for his disciples to learn and how much did he intend on purpose for the Pharisees to overhear? Not, not clear to us, but no doubt he had both audiences in mind. And in verse 1, the story starts by saying there was a rich man. And the second story in verse 19 also starts by saying there was a rich man. So, you know, if I were a rich man... Uh, <laughs> Itty bitty bitty itty bitty bum uh, all day long. I uh, well anyway, you get the idea. I'm going to read the first story, the first parable from verse one down through 
uh, verse 13, and then we'll come back and talk about it. So this is what it says. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose uh, manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Uh, Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, or some of your Bibles might say wisely, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted uh, with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. So part of this story here is the story itself, and the latter part is Jesus' commentary on the story. Uh, Both of these stories here in Luke 16, this first one uh, that we just read, and then the second one that we will read, are unique to the Gospel of Luke. They are not found in any of the other Gospels. So these stories here are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Now, this first story, some people have difficulty with it. And it is a difficult parable in that, you know, it seems here that Jesus was using a dishonest manager as an example. Because, in fact, you know, he calls him a dishonest guy in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly or wisely. Now, why in the world would Jesus use a story like this and use a bad example as a good example? Well, the fact is that Jesus is not using the guy's character as a good example here. What he's using the story to communicate to us is that a bad guy learned a better thing. And the bad thing that he was doing was he was dishonest more so because of the way that he treated the master. And what he did to the master was that he was, in verse 1, go back to verse 1, he was accused of wasting his possessions. Now circle that, wasting his possessions. And you can write off in the margin of your Bible today, actually what we would use as a term, uh, that he was extorting money from his master. It was more than just wasting. It was more than he was just wasn't being a good manager. He was actually probably embezzling. Sorry, not extorting. Embezzling. He was probably embezzling money from his master. And that's what made him, first of all, dishonest. 
So he's a dishonest guy, but what he, what he learns here in the process, and this is the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Here's a guy who was robbing from his master, who then learned the lesson and became a better steward of all that was entrusted to him by the master. So there's like a better ending to the story, and that's the ultimate message that Jesus is trying to communicate. He's not using a, the, well, why would Jesus, you know, this guy is, is a dishonest manager, and Jesus is holding him up as this great example here. No, he's holding him up for us to see this is a guy who learned a lesson. He was robbing from the master, and then in the end, he realized when his job was on the line, and, you know, and he says, well, I can't dig, and I, I don't want to beg. I, that would be embarrassing, so I better do something quickly. And what he does is he turns from robbing the master to doing what he can to honor the master with what rightfully belonged to the master. That's the ultimate lesson here. This is a story about money, stewardship, Okay, in fact, in some of your Bibles, instead of saying manager, it'll say steward. This is an issue of stewardship. And Jesus is going to use this to teach something very practical about money and material possessions. Now, for you note-takers, you can write this down. Eleven out of the 39 parables that Jesus teaches through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, eleven out of 39 have to do with money and or material possessions in some way, shape, or form. Jesus has a lot to say about material things, about money, about being good stewards of it, about it not enslaving us, about being careful that we don't idolize. Because material things have the tendency in our lives to pull us away from God just by nature of our love of stuff. That's just the flesh in us. We love stuff. We can tend to be very materialistic, preoccupied with money, wanting money to be God instead of God being God. So 11 out of 39 parables have to do with the issue of money and stewardship and material things because God knows the human heart's tendency to go after those things and to abandon God and forsake Him in our attempt to gain worldly wealth. Again, there's nothing wrong with having worldly wealth, but the issue is, does it have you and how are we managers of it? So that's the theme here. Uh, Jesus had more to say about money than heaven and hell combined. The topic of heaven and hell combined do not measure to the topic of money and material possessions. So this is a very important topic. Of course, in Matthew 6, 21, it says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So there is a connection, the Bible tells us, between heart issues and how we handle material things. Now, These stories both begin here, verse 1, and again, as I mentioned in verse 19, there was a rich man. It might might as well have been that Jesus said, there was a man from Loudoun County in both of these verses, or a woman from Loudoun County, because we're all wealthy. I don't care what, if you live in Loudoun County, you are wealthy by the world's standards, If you make at least $10,000 a year as a family, if you make at least $10,000 a year, you are better off than 84% of the world's population. If you make $50,000 a year as a family, as a household, you are better off than 99% of the world's population. I read an article in Forbes uh, dealing with this subject last year. The title of the uh, article in Forbes was Astonishing Numbers, America's Poor Still Live Better Than Most of the Rest of Humanity. 
Uh, it was a lengthy article. It was interesting reading, but I'll just summarize a couple of points that I found fascinating in terms of giving us perspective in the issue and the idea of money and, and material possessions. Listen to this study. A typical person in the bottom 5% of America's income, which obviously would be considered poor by America's standard, the typical person in the bottom 5% of America's income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. Isn't that incredible? And the article says that even if you're stuck in the bottom 5% of the U.S. income distribution, your standard of living is about equal to that of the top 5% of those living in India. So everything is perspective. I read, you know, a variety of stats and numbers, and, you know, I don't know how people come up with all this stuff, but, but somebody also calculated if you own one car and one television, you're better off than 80% of the world's population. So, you know, it's interesting. Everything's relative. We have to get the right perspective concerning. But if there's any group of people that need to understand what Jesus is saying here, it is us. So here he goes talking uh, in this first story about this connection here between material possessions and devotion to God and being careful here. And out of this story, I offered to you seven principles about money. Now, look, I'm no, you know, I'm no Dave Ramsey. I'm no, you know, uh, Larry Burkett, uh, who's no longer with us. Uh, but, you know, look, Jesus, I think, just simply gives us some stuff here in this story, and I pulled out seven bullet points. So, you know, take it or leave it, whatever you want to do with it. But here's the first thing that I think is important for us to see from the story, and that is that in general, we must all give an account of our money management. Okay, operating from the premise that all of it belongs to God, and that we are simply entrusted with it for a time, and that we're all stewards of it, one of the first things we have to recognize is that we must all give an account. That's what happens here in verse 2. When the master calls in the manager, he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Give an account of your management, King James says, of your stewardship. That's what it's all about. We are to manage what God has given us. We are to be stewards of what God has given us. But we must give an account. And a lot of times I think that we dismiss the idea of of our money and finances and material things because as Christians, we're more focused on what we would consider to be the bigger spiritual issues. And in case you think that, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 8, 7 to the Corinthian church, he said, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, Five things, he said, just as you regularly excel in those kind of things, speech and faith and love and knowledge, complete earnestness, see to it also that you excel in this grace of giving. And sometimes we don't recognize the idea of our stewardship is something we need to grow in and as well, and we have to be accountable. It's not just our speech we have to give account to God for. It's not just our thought life. It's not just our behavior. It's not just, you know, the way that we treat our spouses or our kids or whatever. It includes, but it's not limited to, obviously, the way that we manage the money that God has given us. And, you know, I think in general, we need to look at our lives and ask ourselves, when we evaluate the way that we handle and our stewards of what God has given us, are we more closed-fisted or open-handed? 
because God delights in generosity. Look, there are a thousand and one words you could use to describe God, okay? And, you know, most people, I think the first thing they would say is God is love. But near up on the top there, it needs to be God is generous. Because you can't even understand the gospel without understanding the generosity of God. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. So God is a generous God. Guess what? If we want to emulate the character of our father, we should also be in practical ways generous people as well. Number two on the list we see in the story here is that unbelievers are sometimes wiser with money than believers. I mean, he points it out to us here in verse 8. In the middle of verse 8, he says, For the people of this world are more shrewd or wise in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Now, obviously, Christians are the people of the light. Believers are people of the light. We've stepped into the light. We've left darkness, and we've been delivered. And so now our eyes are open, and we see things in a way that previously we didn't. And we've come into the light of the Lord. But in this story, Jesus says, you know, in effect, some people of the world know how to be wiser about money than do people of the light and people who belong to God. Christians should not be any less intelligent about good money management and good investments and wise spending than the world. We shouldn't be any less adept at that. We should strive because, see, we have now the perspective that the world doesn't. This isn't just an income that I earned. The salary isn't just what I earned. This is what God has provided. And he's opened up a wonderful opportunity and the talents he's given me to make an income is what all of us should be thinking. And therefore, we have a greater responsibility and accountability with all that God has given us. So we should be wise about it. We should make the most of it. And we should invest carefully and prudently and wisely. But we of all people should manage God's money well. Now, I can tell you that You know, I read this many years ago, and I realized, you know, it's really necessary uh, that as a pastor of a local church, and obviously trying to, that's another level of stewardship, because each of us is not only responsible for stewardship in our personal income, our personal household, but now, you know, here I'm a pastor, and, and the income of the church and stuff, and so several years ago, just by knowing different people in the congregation, I gathered around me an advisory board of people who were financial investors and shrewd with finances and had taken companies to the public stock exchange and knew about this kind of thing because I realized, listen, we need the wisdom of the church and people who God has brought to our fellowship to properly help to manage what God has brought here. And so I'm very thankful for people around myself who know far more than I do about this kind of thing. But all of us need to be wise about it. And Jesus says, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it's the unbelievers who seem to be wiser about the way to handle God's money than even we are. Uh, Number three, I think interesting from the story is basically this, that our good stewardship of money can actually be a testimony to unbelievers. Because he says there in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, taken by itself, that looks like a weird statement, doesn't it? It's like, you know, use worldly wealth, buy a few friends, you know? Just, and, and isn't it interesting how quickly, if you come into money, how many friends suddenly you have? You know what I'm talking about? Every time you come into a little bit of money, all of a sudden, everybody, they're, they're your friend. They're your buddy. Yeah, you haven't seen them in 30 years. 
But now all of a sudden they heard you came into some money and now they want to be your best friend. But anyway, what he's basically saying is that our good stewardship of money can be a good testimony to unbelievers. So it's not in the sense of buying friends. It's in the, it's in the sense of influencing people and, and helping them to see that the way that you live your life and being a steward of everything is a testimony to other people. But in one tiny little way, let me just say this, and I say this every once in a while, and I mean it sincerely. Look, here's a good way, a tiny little way that you can leave a good testimony to somebody, especially if they know that you're a believer. Okay? This is a very simple, very tiny way. Be a good tipper. Be a good tipper. There's nothing worse than a stingy Christian. Be a good tipper. And all the waiters and waitresses in the house said, Amen. Yeah, be a good tipper. You know, I mean, I... Everybody kind of knows me around town now, so I'm forced to be a good tipper. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> all of us should want to be a good tipper. Because, you know, look, it's, it's, a, it's, a slight, it's a small way of making a testimony that you're just trying to, you know, be generous to people. Okay, look, number four. Let's carry on here. Number four, God trusts much to those who are faithful with little. That's what he says pretty clearly there in verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. So if you're faithful with little, then God sees how faithful you are with the little. So he will add more because he wants you to be faithful with more. Not to hoard it, but to be a vessel of it. You know, conversely, he also adds there, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And if somebody... If somebody, uh, you know, proves to be unfaithful with stuff, you, you know, you don't give them more responsibility. You give them less. And so in the same way as God sees that you, that you properly and carefully manage what he's given you, he'll give more so you can properly and carefully manage that as a testimony of stewardship and gratitude to the Lord. Number five, there's just seven things here. Number five, our stewardship of worldly wealth will be an indication of whether we can be trusted with spiritual riches. That's lifted right there from verse 11. He says, so if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? So by worldly wealth, of course, we're just talking about the money that's out there that we you know, earn and, and make a living and spend and all that stuff and save and give. But there are also spiritual riches in the sense that you know, God wants to um, use us, and God wants to be glorified through us, and He's just simply not going to entrust those kind of spiritual riches to us unless He sees in us the proper way that we manage all that He's given us. It's, it's all part of the stewardship thing, but there are spiritual riches, and then there are worldly wealth, and He draws a distinction, and He says one can be an indication of another. Number six, make God your master and money your servant. Make God your master and money your servant. He says there in verse 13, this is familiar to many of you, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money there is capitalized. Some of your translations will say mammon uh, because it's the idea of it's become personified in the text because it's become personified in our lives. It's become like an idol, like a god. And so that's what he's saying. Be careful. God needs to be your master. Money makes a great servant, but a horrible master. <laughs> 
If we are enslaved to money, it's pitiful. But when we are slaves of the Lord, and so He's our master, money is just a tool. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.